We greet those of you who are with us on live stream as well. Those of you who may be tuning into this on any kind of social media or maybe even at a later date, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we continue in our series on the person of Him, which is appropriate because after all, we are Christians. We are of Christ. We are begotten of Him. He is the everlasting Father of the faithful. We follow Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Christians following Christ. Which means we look to Him. We know how Jesus behaved. And we, and we know how he, what He preferred and what His focus was. How He spoke. What He did. We note how He lived. How He reacted to faith how he reacted to unbelief. We know how he walked, and we find that we are in our measure being conformed to that very image by doing this. Because he truly does live in us who believe. We behold and consider him, and as a result, we're transformed in his likeness. Today I want to discuss a precious and foundational truth that is absolutely crucial for you to understand. That Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's the advocate with the Father. Our text this morning is in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. I want to lay some groundwork first before we can successfully launch in this consideration. Jesus Christ being our advocate. He said, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Notice the language that's used here. Ch- little children. Not, not as in like a lack of maturity. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking, this is like a family language. This is a, this is a, this is a loving message from God. John is not addressing those outside of Christ here. It's not an appeal to those who are at a considerable distance from God. No, this is addressed to those who have been begotten of God as dear children. The children of God. It appeals to who we actually are in Christ. The household of faith. It's not a cold, hard letter of law. John isn't laying down like a cold, hard law here. The Lord commands you to sin not. This is a, oh, an appeal to the heart. I appreciate the tone that's delivered in this message. We can learn a lot, a lot from it, even in how we speak to one another. This isn't just a formality. This is a, this is a tender and precious appeal to the heart from God Himself. That's the emphasis. Now, the objective of what John has written is stated plainly that we would not sin. In fact, the Holy Scriptures have this effect on the hearts of all believers, does it not? It actually encourages us not to sin. Nobody can sit down and read the Scripture and really give themselves to it and come away with, you know what, I really want to sin against God right now. And how many times can you be in fellowship with a dear brother discussing the things of God and in that moment be just have this compulsion just to go out and sin? See, that 
The Scriptures don't have that. The Word of Truth does not have that effect on the heart. It encourages us not to sin. See, because sin is totally out of order for the child of God. And why is that? You see, the Lord God, the Maker of heaven and earth, is absolutely righteous and absolutely holy through and through. Jehovah is utterly intolerant of sin. Always has been and always will be. The salvation of God is a salvation that is calculated to deliver us from everything that is contrary to God. It's to extricate us from sin. It does not make a provision for any person to continue in their sin knowingly. Today there are popular doctrines that if you if if you truly trace what they teach to their conclusion, they are actually doing this. They are actually representing the reconciliation of God and man as something that causes God to meet us in the middle somehow when that is not the case. As if because of Christ, God has somehow lowered His standard when it comes to our sin personally. That that He does this because He has somehow changed His mind about it. Brethren, people are teaching this today. Many people today present the atoning blood of Christ as something that causes God to merely overlook sin or become indifferent to sin. But this could not be further from the truth. The character and the nature of God cannot change and will never change. He is truly from everlasting to everlasting. He can't change. And I praise God that He can't change or or Israel would have been consumed. He has always and will always hate sin. And He has clearly demonstrated this from the beginning. It's in the record now. It's in the record that God gave of His Son how much He hates sin. Adam and Eve, they were expelled from the garden. They were expelled from all manner of blessing. Their fellowship with God was immediately terminated and cut off for one sin. Not for a handful of sins, for one sin. Their fellowship with the Father was cut off. The earth was cursed. All of God cursed the natural creation because of one sin. Cain was cursed because of his sin. And his generation was cursed as well. The whole world in the days of Noah was destroyed because of sin. God delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies over and over and over again because of sin. God's judgments against sin are recorded hundreds of times in the Scriptures. Because of sin, people were often delivered up to the enemy, to serpents, to sickness, to plague, to famine, to death, to exile, to bondage, to oppression, to servitude. Because sin has no part in God. He hates it. If mankind was ever going to be reconciled to God, sin had to be absolutely and utterly and totally dealt with. And praise God that it has in His Son, Jesus Christ. And not just the penalty for transgressions already committed or transmissions that would be committed, but everything sinful had to be addressed including the natural tendency of mankind to commit sin. 
the tendency of men to prefer and continue in sin had to also be addressed. It wasn't enough just to wipe the transgression out of the way. Intercession had to be made for the transgressors. The salvation of God isn't just to forgive your past transgressions. It's calculated to make you into a person fit to inhabit a sinless world that only dwells righteousness. That's the truth. What's the point of forgiving a person's sin if they are still a, a, a sinner at the very core of their being? Like if that's who they really are, if that's who they, what they really love, and if that's what they really prefer, then what good would it do just to put away the sin that's already been done? You see that the, the absolution of sin is it's much deeper than people give it thought nowadays. God is really setting us free from enslavement to sin. He's really doing that. When you were baptized, you died to sin. Your old man was crucified in that and that you should no longer serve sin. That's where we all started in the kingdom. A new heart, a new master, a new new and a living way. This is the reality and norm of Christian living. Not to serve sin when it demands to be served. Now it is true that God is able to keep us from sin personally. Just as he withheld Abimelech from sinning against him when he took Sarah, Abraham's wife. However, when it comes to salvation, God has not intended to force men to behave against their own volition and against their own participation, but rather being kept from sin consistently will be the result of a very real change of character and nature within us. And the reality is this, a real faith in God really produces a real likeness to God Himself in our character and in our essential nature. In other words, we aren't kept from committing sin because we were forced against our will to to not keep, keep sin. Neither do we cease from committing sin on the basis of a rule that we must follow because God said so. God forbid. If that was the case, then the law would have been sufficient, wouldn't it have not? If, if, if all it took to be kept from sin was for God to lay down a cold, hard law, well, then the law should have kept us from sin. But you see, there was a, there was a much deeper problem with inside of us that needed to be addressed. And this is what God is addressing in salvation. And God forbid we should go where some people have gone and say that even though we willingly sin, that God forgives it anyway because of what Jesus has done. That They would do well to consider the words of the Apostle Paul. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. No, we are actually being changed to hate sin and prefer righteousness. Within the, with the heart, man believes on the salvation. And the utterance of, the, of a heart after God's own heart, or as David's when he said, I hate every false way. Or when he said, I hate vain thoughts. Or when he said, I hate and abhor lying. This is a man after God's own heart said this. Therefore, 
in light of this very real change that has taken place within the little children of God. Wherever in the church there is a teaching that makes allowance for sin or excuses sin or anywhere there is found an acceptance of sin or a cultured love for and preference of sin, it's always the result of a powerless religion, not the religion that's declared in the holy and errant Word of God. A religion that doesn't change the people is a vain religion. It's vanity. It's worthless. And therefore, a religion that doesn't save the people. Now, this does not mean that we are in totality. A sinless perfection currently. Especially after we are warned that if we say we have no sin or have not sinned, that the truth is not in us. John just got done saying that in 1 John 1.8. The sober truth is that we are not yet what we are intended to be. Even though we have been made new, we are still living alongside the old. And a great liability, which is another law written in our members, a fallen nature that is only capable of sinning, fleshly lust at war against the soul, a competitive influence that competes with the spirit that's in us. And us of the truth know this. And to deny that would be a lie. We often experience unholy thoughts and temptations while living in this body. And we find that while walking in the Spirit that we truly hate having to contend with them. John wrote these things to stir up this new part of us. To cause us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And when we do, the Spirit becomes prominent in absolute awareness of a righteous and holy God. A determination to not sin is always present. That's that's the mode. The, The Christian that's seriously following after the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want to sin. I don't want to sin. And if any man sin, if any man sin, notice it doesn't say when any man sins. It uses a word that refers to an exception. If any man sin. To the mature man of God, sinning is the exception. It's not the norm. Actually, the language used in the epistles whenever it comes to dealing with sin, never one time does it ever speak of sin in a way that necessitates its expression among regenerate men. Just search it for yourself. We're not, we're not obligated to serve sin. We're not obligated to yield our members as the servants of sin. I understand that when a toddler is first learning to walk, he trips and falls all the time, practically over everything. But this is not the the norm for an athlete to constantly lose their footing. Or even normal people, you don't, You don't go to a crowded area and see people just falling all over the place all the time. If somebody trips and falls, it's an exception. This is a, this is something that we see in everyday life in the natural order. The same is true as we grow up in the Christ. Maturity makes for stability. The normal mode of Christian living is not sinning. Now, of course, we are speaking about particular sins that we are aware of and tempted by. 
We're not, we're not talking about small faults and inadvertencies that are unknown to us, that we're not consciously aware of. We're not talking about little things that haven't been brought to our attention. Now, John just got done saying this, remember? He said, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. And that leads me to believe that any peripheral sins that we are presently unaware of, unintentional, not deliberate, not considered, not coming to our minds, are not imputed against us as we are walking in the light and have fellowship with God. Although technically they are presently expressed in your body that is contrary to God, that has a law that's contrary to God written in its members. So if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Lord is not a respecter of persons. This advocate is available to everyone in Christ, regardless of their past record, regardless of their age or gender or other fleshly attribute, regardless of their esteem among men or their place in the church. Regardless if they've been in Christ for one day or one hundred years, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If any person is overcome by sin, comes to the realization that they have sinned against God, and that as a result, their fellowship has been disrupted, their conscience has been smitten, their course has been interrupted, if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The devil has tried his best to hide this, but God is clear in his assurance to his people that there is a present provision for recovering from sin available to those who have sinned in Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate in place, currently in place now, right now, working in that capacity. Speaking today about Jesus Christ, our advocate with the Father. What exactly is an advocate? Noah Webster defined it as an, as from the Latin word advocatus from advoco, which means to call for, to plead for. One who defends, vindicates, or espouses a cause by argument, by one who is friendly to, as an advocate for the peace. Or for the oppressed. In scripture, Christ is called an advocate for his people. One who in times of trial or hardship sympathizes with the afflicted and administers suitable direction and support. An advocate comes from a legal word, actually, to plead a cause. Like a defense attorney would before a judge when somebody's being prosecuted for a crime. Although this word is only used once in the scriptures, the principle of an advocate is actually seen all throughout the word of God, and especially in types and shadows pointing to the reality, to the substance of Christ, our advocate in heaven. For instance, Abraham was moved to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah. He was was moved to petition the Lord. Sparing it because of the righteous that were in it. Moses often pleaded for the people when they sinned against the Lord. Daniel pleaded for Israel that they would be delivered from bondage and would return again. 
Samuel prayed for the people. They said, pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not. Job pleaded for his sons often who feasted. He also prayed for his friends that they would, that God would not destroy them because of their provocative sin of presumption, how they had offended God by judging him and his servant. Esther pleaded the cause of her people. Despite the own risk to herself. See, she, she, she saw an opportunity to plead her cause. This is all throughout the scripture. The apostle Paul characterized the ministry of our Lord as the ministry of reconciliation. The prophet Isaiah formally foretold that Christ would make intercession for the transgressors since Christ has been at the right hand of God since his ascension. Jesus Christ is precisely positioned to make intercession for us. It's an ongoing work that will continue as long as he lives, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. This intercession is an essential part of his mediatorial work, the ministry of reconciliation. In other, in other words, the ministry of reconciliation pertains to making reconciliation for the sins of the people. And guess what, brethren? That includes you and me. This, this belongs to the office of Christ as our great high priest and refers generally to the aid that extends as mediator, intercessor, and advocate with God and between God and mankind. In a particular sense, Christ is represented as being in a position right alongside the Father and is pleading in behalf of men on the earth. And thus it's in, it's in harmony with the idea of intercession that He is called our advocate. We don't have to guess about the dialogue that takes place in heaven between the Father and the Son. The, the shadow of it, as we've discussed, is shown in the Scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses recalled all of the times that the Lord was set on destroying them because of their sin. Even the Aaron, the high priest, God was going to destroy him if Moses hadn't prayed for him. And because he pleaded for them, it says that God listened to him. In one of the passages, Moses says, starting chapter 9, verse 25, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Thus I fell down before the Lord forty days and forty nights as I fell down at the first. Because the Lord had said He would destroy you. The Lord Jesus Christ fell down for us. I prayed therefore unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people and thine inheritance which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. <coughs> Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, look not unto the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin, <clears throat> lest the land which you brought us out to say, because the Lord was not able to bring them unto the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he hath brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out, by thy mighty power 
and by thy stretched out arm. Can you see the reasoning, the pleading, and the advocating employed in that passage? Notice that his advocation wasn't really based on anything that Israel had done. It wasn't based on anything that they'd done to be spared. Moses' plea was all based on what God had done, was doing, would do through His people, His purpose for His people. In the same manner, when Jesus pleads our cause, He isn't pleading with God based on the good things that you have done to deserve to be forgiven. He pleads with God on the basis of His namesake and His purpose and His counsel and His blood and His sacrifice and His propitiation and His atonement. He does not attempt to excuse our sin or make light of it, but rather He pleads in view of the redemption that purchased us, where He has brought us from, the covenant that God made with Him. He pleads on the basis of that. The covenant that He has made in view of God's greatness and God's superiority over the enemy and ultimately because we are His inheritance and it's right to pardon us because of what He has done. That's the pleading. He's not pleading based on our merit. He's pleading based on His merit. The word advocate is actually the direct opposite of the word accuser. The nature of an accuser is what? It's to look... Look for a reason to find fault or blame with somebody. That's, an, that's the nature. I'm talking about the nature of an accuser yeah. is to try and figure out how am I going to find fault with that person. Well, the nature of an advocate is quite the opposite. Actually, it's, the, it's diametrically opposed to the other word. The nature of an advocate is to actively seek a reason to pardon someone. Where the devil sought to find any reason he could to destroy and condemn us, Jesus seeks any reason that exists to save and forgive us. Because of Jesus, God is looking for a way to pardon sinners, not not condemn them. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Whosoever will may come. He's seeking a way to, to reconcile men unto Him Himself. What excuse is there going to be? On the day of judgment when men are found to be not reconciled to God. Because some are. It's not going to be the advocate's fault. For a long time, mankind only had an accuser. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. Before we had an advocate in heaven, guess what? We had an accuser in heaven that stood before God night and day accusing us. Well, if that's not a testimony to the long-suffering of God, I don't know what is. However, the accuser's day in heaven was short-lived because now we have an advocate. And since we have an advocate in heaven, there's no longer room for an accuser in heaven. The accuser of the brethren was cast down. Now that the devil has been destroyed and cast down to the earth, In in contrast, we have an advocate who pleads our case before God night and day, providing a continuing provision and remedy for sin. This is why this is so essential to understand. Satan may have stopped accusing us before God since he's cast down, but mark my words, he hasn't stopped trying to accuse us and discourage us personally. 
The devil doesn't, is not going to quit just because he's been cast down to the earth. He's still that old serpent. The devil never misses an opportunity to remind you of your past sins, let alone a sin that you've just committed. The second that you commit a sin, mark my words, the devil is right there with a slew of condemning thoughts designed to get you to wallow in the despair of your sin. Fight back, dear children of God, with this word of truth that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's really there right now doing the work. And don't you be tempted to forget that. If all Jesus did was forgive the sin that we've done in the past, and He, and he did that, if Jesus wouldn't have wiped your slate clean, you couldn't have had an entrance into heaven. But if that's all He did, then once we sin, the devil would still have a pretty good case to make against you for your destruction. When it comes to finding fault with man, I reckon next to God Himself, the devil is the best prosecuting attorney that the world's ever known. Without an advocate in heaven... God would not forgive your sin. Said without an advocate in heaven, God would not forgive your sin. <clears throat> However, the case that Jesus makes is always superior for those who believe in him. The Father is ever reminded by the Son that he is our propitiation. Where before God had a continual reminder from the from the accuser of the brethren how we should be destroyed, now God has a continual reminder of how He should bless those who come to Jesus Christ by faith. Amen. The Father will never forget the debt that His Son has paid. Amen. He will never forget the total punishment that was levied for sin. The Father will never forget that His justice was satisfied and that sin was recompensed in His Son. He'll never forget it. We have an advocate who pleads day and night. We have one who successfully defends, stands up and speaks for us in the courts of heaven. To those who may have fallen, encouragement is offered for a full recovery. And this is the manner of God. Now, this, this does not mean that Jesus advocates sinning. I want to make this clear. He is not making an excuse to us to God whenever we sin. Jesus isn't in heaven making an excuse for people who aren't interested in living for God. Jesus Christ is not your mediator, intercessor, or advocate if you do not believe that He is the Son of God. And if you are living at a comfortable distance from God and comfortable in that. But when the exception arises that we find that we have sinned and that we are grieved and contaminated and in need of cleansing, Jesus will always underwrite your effort to return to the Father. He will plead your case for reinstatement, so to speak. And His pleading is always successful. It's always successful. Never one time does God plead, does Jesus plead to God and, and, and God say, no, that, in this case, that's too much. When the, when, the, when the advocacy is made and the pleading is made, it's always successful. To those who come to Jesus Christ, by, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. There, there has to be a totality in that 
there has you you have to real you, there has to be a to, a full assurance of faith in that. Yeah. There can't be like in well ninety percent of the time that might be right. This has to, it's an all or nothing thing. Jesus isn't pleading with us as an outsider or as a mere petitioner, but as somebody who is well-pleasing to the Father. As somebody who has merited. Jesus has actually merited. He's earned what he's asking for. When he pleads with God, he's asking for something that he's earned. Adam Clark wrote in his commentary, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If any man sin, if through ignorance and experience, the violence of temptation and watchfulness, you have fallen into sin and grieved the Spirit of God, do not continue in sin nor under the guilt. Do not despair of being again restored under the favor of God. Your case, it is true, is deeply deplorable, but not desperate. There is still hope. For he hath not despised, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If today you are burdened, by the weight and guilt of sin. Perhaps it's something that you just realized you have done. Or maybe it's something that you've been carrying around with you for a while now. Confess it. Confess it to God. Jesus Christ, the righteous advocate in heaven. He is sitting alongside the Father where He ever lives to make intercession for us. In conclusion, brethren... We are not obligated to give our sinful nature free reign or sin much more freely because our sins are cleansed by the blood of Christ. But we must rather much more diligently resist sin. But at the same time, we must not despair because of our weakness, for we have an advocate and a perjurer. We must fully commit ourselves to God in honesty understanding that a provision has been made for us when we honestly need it. Mm -hmm. And I am thankful for this blessed arrangement. Our God is holy, and He cannot abide for ever the image of sin in His sight. What are we to do in these bodies of sin where a contrary law that is written within? If we say we've not sinned, we do not the truth, or say that we have none, yet that's no excuse. To continue in sin when provision is made. To not serve our sin or to make us its slave. And so that is, this is written that we would not sin. And it's driven this righteous determination. For this is the mode, this is our direction. While sinning is always remains the exception. And if we do sin, a provision is there. These things are written to us with great care. That though one be smitten, he should not despair. His assurance is clear to dispel any doubt. If the advocate's in, the accuser is out. He's told it of old through Moses and Daniel and Job and David and Esther and Nathaniel. Ever pleading with God, he comes to our aid to establish again the ones who have strayed. Oh, blessed advocate, a pleading provision. Not on our works or our merits condition, 
But on His alone for the blood that He shed, He ever holds argument for us in His stead, ever reminding the Father this deed, who accomplished His will satisfied and well-pleased. The Father does grant the Son's own petition to cleanse us from sin and to grant us a remission, to establish us safe in a holy position. Thank God for the Advocate, Jesus the Righteous, who's pleading with God to save us, not strike us. Now, sin not, dear saint. Walk as he is blessed. And if anyone sin, make sure to confess it. Thank you, brethren.